0: Writing Matters with Dr. Troy Hicks is a Writable podcast. Find more episodes and subscribe on your favorite platforms. And if you want to learn how to grow great writers, check out writable.com.
1: In this episode of Writing Matters, I speak with Trisha Barvia, a high school English teacher, an NWP colleague, and co-founder of the Twitter chat Disrupt Texts. Trisha and I have a wide-ranging conversation about the work that she does with her students, with her teachers, and how to make space for the I in academic writing. Welcome to Writing Matters. Today, we speak with Trisha Barvia, who's a high school English teacher, has NWP Connections in Pennsylvania, and is the co-founder of Disrupt Text, among a number of other accolades, which I'm sure we'll talk about, as well as the teaching of writing. So, welcome, Tricia. Thanks, Troy. I'm really looking forward to our conversation, and I know that you've had a busy day at school, and I appreciate you taking the time uh, out to do this this evening, so thanks so much. And as we get started, I'm really curious to hear a bit about your path through education. We were Having a little uh, Spartan U of M uh, rivalry talk before we began the conversation, but maybe you could tell us a bit about um, your path as an educator and uh, how you've come to be where you are today.
0: Sure. Um, Well, I didn't always think I would be a teacher. Um, I kind of, I don't want to say fell into it because that makes it seem like it wasn't a choice, but um, I took some classes as an undergrad that had to do with education and education policy. And um, I've just always, I think those classes um, reaffirmed the value and necessity of public education in particular. Um, And I've always loved English, right? I was an English major. And so I think those two things work naturally together. As an introvert, I never would have thought I would be standing in front of a classroom of kids all day, much less teenagers. Um, but I did a lot of student group activity work when I was an undergrad and even in grad school. And so I think it was that, that connection I had and working with people that really felt natural to me, um, after a while. And I couldn't imagine being in sort of like an office job. So I think, um, after I graduated, then I decided to go to grad school to get my teaching certificate and, um, That was in 2001, and so since then, I have been a public school teacher in Pennsylvania at a fairly uh, medium-ish or large-ish, I guess it depends on your perspective, about 2,300 students. Um, It is a fairly high-achieving kind of suburban district, very similar to the one that I actually went to. Um, So I think it gives me a lens um, into the culture and community, although it's not the same. It is familiar, I should say. Um, And uh, I think when I think about my career and I think about um, touch points that were really um, formative or transformative for me, um, for sure, it was my experience with the Pennsylvania Writing and Literature um, Project. I did their writing institute in two thousand. Actually, I did their reading institute in 2009, and then I did their writing institute in 2011, and that really just transformed everything for me. Just that was when I first heard of Nancy Atwell and Penny Kittle and Kelly Gallagher, um, and it just really being immersed in that kind of writing workshop experience. It's one thing to read about it, but it's another thing to be immersed in it as a learner and as a writer, um, and that transformed everything for me. And so since then, I've just been. Really working on my own professional development and making connections beyond my own school and situation to connect with colleagues. Um, If I were to point at a second transformative moment, it would be when I was selected as a Heinemann Fellow in 2016. Um, And that led me to an incredible group of educators from around the country who really pushed and challenged me to be a better teacher and to really think again and get back in touch with that idea of what is public, ed- public education about, who are we serving, um, and in what ways, and how am I as a teacher, even though I'm an individual, how am I participating in that? So, um, so yeah, that's kind of like the long story of how I got to where I am and sort of all the thinking that I'm, I'm doing. It it feels strange to think that I'm almost 20 years into my career now. And, um, and I don't know, I guess it's halfway, maybe more than halfway. I'm not sure. So.
1: (laughs) Oh, well, I know I have that little retirement clock counting sometimes too. I can Mm -hmm. understand how that goes. But yeah, I think we first connected through Heinemann. Perhaps it was at an NWP event. I, I don't know. I'm trying to remember some of that, but I know we've got some of those shared connections and some of that same pedagogical, philosophical background. So I certainly hear what you're saying about how those are transformative experiences. and mm-hmm. And also, I appreciate what you're saying about the value of public education. And in fact, as I was getting ready to talk with you, I had pulled up one of your blog post uh, that was relatively recently and I'm wondering if we could start with this conversation about what public education is and what it's designed to do. You had said that if we're really going to be disruptive and think about ways of teaching that are more, I hesitate to use the word progressive, but I'll use that for the moment and I'm sure you'll have better ones. You say, begin with the premise that public schools never intended to educate all children equally. I wonder if you could elaborate a bit on that and how that idea has informed you and what it means in your day-to-day work.
0: Yeah, I think that, um, well, if you look at the, well, let me back up. Um, When I was in college, I really believed in this mission of public schools, this idea that in the United States, that we were doing something incredible that no other country had done before and trying to educate the masses, right? That it was, That education was going to become this truly democratizing force. I mean, I swallowed up Dewey, and it was just, it was everything. Um, Grad school, I read Freire, and so then I thought, hmm, I have to do some more thinking about that. Um, But when I say that, to begin with the premise that public school is never meant to educate everyone equally, I think about the history and really coming to terms with the true history of what schooling is in the United States which includes some of the first schools were um, Indian res- residential schools, which exp- whose express purpose was to erase Native children from their culture and divorce them from any ties to their, to their tribal history and their families. Um, and then, of course, we know that, um, you know, children of color were never meant to be educated and that it was illegal to be able to read or write if you were a Black and brown person. Um, and so I think when we say, like, public schools are supposed to be this um this great equalizer or engine of democracy i do think that they could be but i don't think they ever have been Um, and i think we had talked earlier you know the public schools are designed they're working just as they've been designed to work so it they serve some students very very well they served me very very well and i think because they served me well I assumed they served everyone well, or I assumed if you weren't getting something out of your education, then there must be something wrong with you, or there must be something wrong with you know your community or your lack of motivation or any any number of other issues. Because I had that sort of that bias in my background, um, but the more I learned, um, the more I realized that um, that when we think about public schools working in this country, when we think about their potential. They do have tremendous potential, but it's not about going back to a time, some golden era when they worked well. It's, it, we, haven't even, we haven't even approached it yet, right, when you mm. think about the inequities mm-hmm. we have in education. And some days I don't know that we ever will, um, to be honest, um, but we try. So,
1: mm. I certainly can resonate with that. And working with pre-service teachers and leading workshops with in-service teachers that is a constant conversation in my mind right like we're trying to aspire to be better and yet the policies and procedures and let's face it institutional racism and sexism and other things that still pervade education can be absolutely overwhelming and it's, it's very difficult sometimes to feel like you're making a difference
0: well it's baked into the institution right i mean Mm -hmm. it is truly embedded in everything that we do when we think about dress codes when we think about discipline policies um, school you know we we think about preparing kids for society and in some ways schools do that because they reflect the inequities that we have in society Um, the discrimination that students will go on to face as an adult especially students of color they already face that in school so i guess in that very cynical view schools are working perfectly. Um, But I wonder how we can think about schools as a way to help kids um, not just be prepared for, you know, whatever society they're going into, but give them the tools and skills to actually change society to a better one, one that um, can honor all the different identities and diversity that we have in this country in ways that we haven't yet done so.
1: Right. And that is just a perfect segue, because this is exactly what I was hoping we would talk about, both within your classroom and what happens for you and your students in that space, and then also the work that you're doing more broadly with the profession and some of the work around disrupt texts and clear the air. Which way would you like to go first? Do you want to start by telling us a little bit about what life looks like in your classroom with your students and the teaching of writing there, or would it be better to start from that broader professional lens?
0: Um, hmm. I don't know. I think we could go really go either direction because to me they are inseparable, right? In so many ways, I think who we are as professionals and people as human beings outside of the classroom is who we are as professionals and people inside the classroom. Um, you know, there's a lot of this kind of there's this false notion that we somehow leave who we are at the door and we're just like quote unquote teachers when we're in the classroom, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, but that's not true. We bring all of our beliefs, we bring all of our life experiences, and that includes um, some of our biases, especially those that have not been um, examined closely. We bring all of those into the room with us, um, whether we are conscious of this or not. Um, so, one of the things I've been advocating for professionally is for teachers to do a lot more um, anti bias. Um, really critical self-reflection, the kind of critical self-reflection that really starts with self. Um, I think most teachers, all teachers, well, I don't know. I think most teachers went into education to help kids and believe in that sort of ideal, idealistic view of schooling that I did as well. Um, And I think that um, we understand, most teachers understand that things aren't fair, and we're trying to help kids build a better world. Um, But in order to build a better world, we have to really understand the systems of oppression that have been working against kids and have been working against us. And if we want to have kids be um, those leaders who will tear down those systems of oppression, if we need to understand those systems, we have to first understand how those systems of oppression have worked on our own selves and our own lives. Um, and that's hard. It means giving up a lot of, or not giving up, I should say. It, sh- it means challenging and coming to terms with some of the biases that we may have um, internalized over the years. So, for example, I'll, I'll, I'll start with myself. Um, you know, as someone who is a second ger- generation Asian American um my parents came to this country in the 1970s um, from the Philippines, and you know they very much believed in hard work and education it's why we moved so many times in order to constantly like upgrade to a better school and to be clear by better school, it was higher SAT scores and progressively white um, and that mm-hmm. really was um, and I think as someone who was always in spaces where i really was only the only um, maybe person of color at my elementary school, like through eighth grade, maybe one or two, um, in addition to my brother. Um, High school was a little bit better, um, but still not many Filipino Americans. Uh, I was Mm -hmm. constantly trying to fit in. And I think about the ways in which um, I internalized um, beliefs about what it meant to be educated and how I internalized beliefs about things, for example, like the canon, right? And to be educated meant to be able to recite a Shakespeare soliloquy. To be educated meant to have read Great Expectations and to have read To Kill a Mockingbird and to have read Hamlet and any number of other things. Um, Mm -hmm. So in a way, it was a way for me to have this academic power, but I had never stopped to question who made these rules about power and how that also meant I was not in those texts, right? And Mm -hmm. not just me, because I don't want this to just be about me. All those mirrors are important, as we know from Dr. Rudine Sims Bishop, but even others. I only one text by a person of color in my entire high school career, um, Raisin in the Sun by Lorraine Hansberry. And I think some Harlem Renaissance poets, maybe if I remember correctly. Um, And that's considered a good education. So I I think that really troubles me. And I think as I have learned to unpack what that means, when we mean educated or what we mean when we say well-read, I've thought about the implications of that as a teacher. And so when we think about public schools and how we are reproducing systems of oppression, am I complicit in that? And so for, you know, the beginning of my career, I happily taught from the canon, didn't even think twice about it. Um, even though I was someone who had gone out of my way in college to read a lot of multicultural literature. Mm -hmm. The the minute I got back into school, it was like my socialization of what it means to be in public school sort of took over, in addition to the fact that this is just what the curriculum looked like when I got there. Um, And so I I happily did that. Now, to be fair, I will say that um, I also taught world literature, which by its very definition was broader right? Mm -hmm. Um, but the American literature program looked as many American literature programs do, right? And, um, I didn't question it for a long time until I think I started to develop professionally. I started to look around me a little bit more. Um, and again, some of the professional relationships I've had with other educators of color outside of my specific, um, school, because there aren't, I'm the only educator of color in my department. Um, it's those relationships that have really helped me to see more clearly the ways in which the system is simply unfair and set up to be so.
1: Mm. Well, there's so much to unpack in what you just yeah. said. I, <laughs> well, I I I mean I think a couple things, you know, you 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 talked from your own experience about how it, your parents kept moving you to what you described as schools that were more progressively white and reaching and attaining higher SAT scores, which again, on the one hand, can we fault parents for wanting that for their children? And yet at the same time, then you felt like that didn't give you the education that you needed and perhaps what you're trying to provide now. And you had said earlier that, you know, you're in a suburban school that is similar to where you were. So you, you I am guessing, and I would really like to hear more. Um, I'm guessing that you face some resistance from your students and from parents when you do try to disrupt the canon and you try to bring in alternative voices. Or, or are you are you able to do that and feel that uh, that's working well now? What what does that look like and feel like for you?
0: Um, I think it's I think it's hard in the sense that, um, you only. Know what you know, and you don't know what you don't know, right? And um, I think about again, like I said, I think about myself early in my teaching career. Current Trisha would have been very unhappy and is very unhappy with early Mm. career Trisha. Um, (laughs) And we're just all in different places, I think. Um, I haven't faced a lot of resistance, I would say, from parents. Um, If anything, I've had many parents actually talk to me about. How they really appreciate the ways in which their students are being exposed to more voices um, and bigger issues, and how their kids are coming home, you know, talking about things in the world that they hadn't talked about before. So I appreciate that, Um, and the kids too. I think I think it's hard. I think that um, most kids they know, and you know, kids are smart. They know that racism exists. They know sexism exists. Um, but they also pick up on societal cues that say you shouldn't talk about those things. Or that if you do talk about things, the rule is to talk about them as if they happened in the past. So that, you know, um, civil mm-hmm. rights was, you know, racism was solved with civil rights. Um, you know, the uh, colonization is something that happened in, was an event in 1492. Like, those are the kinds of things. And I've had students actually say that, who say, who have said that we've only talked about racism as it exists in the past and we don't connect it to right now. Or um, we don't see, we, we read books by um, African-American writers, but they always seem to be um, historical fiction kind of things of speaking to a time past about racism. Um, and they recognize that. So for example, like last year, um, my students read Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson, and they I mean, it really opened their eyes to the injustices in the criminal justice system. Um, And they started to make connections with, you know, across um, other disciplines, fields, arenas, everywhere. Um, And I think kids want to be able to have, they don't always have to agree. And I always tell them that, that you don't have to agree. But what we're looking for is the skills to be able to have discourse that deepens our understanding. Um, and that is like the the skill that I want them to have. And I'm very transparent about that. Um, I do an identity activity that's um, inspired by teaching tolerance, where we go through our different identities um, at the beginning of the year and sort of think about which of these identities, um, identity categories um, are most impactful to how we sort of navigate the world. And the categories are things like race and gender Um, socioeconomic status, ability, sexual orientation, um, home language, nationality. Um, I use age as well. Um, And there's probably a few more that I'm missing. Um, But one thing that I tell students is like, you know, these demographic categories, they don't define you. Um, Clearly, you're more than any of these categories. Um, But when we think about the biggest issues we face in society today, all of them stem from one of these issues right? Mm -hmm. And in order to understand how these issues are manifesting themselves in the world and in our policies and the way that politicians are talking about these issues and the way that these are manifesting themselves in our practices from our legal system to our um, policies at school, we have to understand how these are impacting us as individuals, right? And so if we can make that connection and unpack that and understand how our response to issues in the world are really grounded in our own personal experiences along those different identities, then we can at least know where our reactions are coming from. We can be more mindful of that. And then we can also know that the person who's sitting across the classroom from me who may disagree with me, that they're also speaking our truth from their lived experiences, and so that we're not talking past each other anymore. At least we are understanding where we're coming from. Mm
1: -hmm. I'm wondering if you could tell us even more about that then, because I have to believe that this shows up in the the topics that students choose, possibly the genres that they're choosing from as well. What does this mean for you as a writing teacher? How how does this manifest itself in the ways that you teach writing?
0: Yeah, so I think one story that I have often told is um, I had a student come to me last year, the year before, um, and she spoke about how she was writing her college essay, which is the most important piece of writing that kids will write in high school. Say what you want about I mean, it's true, the research paper is incredibly important, and, like, kids need <laughs> skills moving into college for these things. Um, right, right. But for the kids, the college essay, which is narrative, you know, that is the most important, the high, most high-stakes piece of writing they will ever produce in high school. And so she came to me, and she said that she um, – wanted to write about an experience, experience, her experiences growing up as Korean American. And, but she was told that you don't write about those things, like not to write about those things. And she Mm. kind of said it in a way, was like, I I could tell she wanted permission to write about it. And um, I dug a little deeper and I asked her, well, like, well, who is telling you you can't write about this? Is this your guidance counselor? Because I, I couldn't imagine guidance counselor telling her that. And she said, no, it was her friends. And then we dug a little bit deeper and I asked her to, you know, give more context about that. Um, And it was her white friends, (laughs) um, which I thought was interesting to think about, to unpack that. And I'm making no judgment. I'm just thinking about how that is interesting and how that plays out, right? Um, And she didn't feel like she could write about it. Um, but she wanted to. And so she needed someone to just give her permission. And I actually had this student, I had had this student when she was a ninth grader and not, so she was coming to me a few years later. Um, if I'd had her when she was a junior in my, where I do a lot of, I do a lot of writing in all my classes. Um, she would have been in a class where for the past several years, I, I don't shy away from mentor texts and really reading and analyzing mentor texts that focus on issues of race and gender and um, any number of things that have to do with their identity. I think the difficulty for many kids is that, one, they don't know how to write about themselves. They're, that's a weird thing to them uh, because we've killed the eye, right? They, like, even yeah. just last week, I think students said that we're working on a personal essay right now and they, they were all saying how it's so weird to have the I in there. <laughs> and, then, and one student even said that she used the control F feature to look for all the I's and she used to take them out because that's what she was taught. You don't, it's not, that's not what writing is. So it's, it's a lot of unlearning that has to happen sometimes. But then in addition to that, it's not just you can write with the I, it's also like who is the I that writes? And that I has a racial identity, has a gender identity, has a socioeconomic identity um, has a social identity that has to do with any number of things, um, and that they're f- trying to figure it out. But kids don't know how to do that. Um, they don't know, or they're not practiced, I should say. They're not practiced at that kind of critical self-reflection along those different um, elements of who they are. Um, so I think it's critical to bring mentor texts into the classroom to give them examples of strong writing. And by strong, I don't mean confident. I mean really thoughtful, right? And Mm -hmm. even if the essay is someone struggling with an identity or struggling with what it means to be bilingual or or monolingual, if it's an issue of lost language, let's say, um, it's an exploration in the best sense of an exploration. And that really fulfills the idea of an essay as being um, a story of thinking. So mm-hmm. I think even just reading mentor texts that really help kids understand the experiences of others and themselves is really critical because then they can see, I can write about this. This is something that I can write about. I've even had students, um, you know, I keep student essays from years before and um, I will use some of them as mentor texts so that kids are actually seeing other students from years previous. Mm-hmm. And when they see what other kids write, it has given them permission to say, I can write about that too. Um, and so that in a way is how that kind of shows up in my classroom. And for the most part, I it's really been empowering to see kids take ownership over that voice.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the most powerful things you just said is this, question, who is the I that writes? And having just helped my own daughter with a college application essay, I can understand (laughs) exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. She had gone in almost classic five paragraph Mm -hmm. format. And I was like, let's reread the prompt. Let's think about what they're probably looking for. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. So there's a lot of unlearning that has to happen. And I appreciate, too, how you discuss this idea of an essay really being this idea of discovery and exploration and not just, let me put all these same things that you want me to say in the same order with nice little transitions, but to actually use the act of writing as an opportunity for discovery, uh, which, as we know, unfortunately doesn't always happen for every kid in every classroom. So,
0: No, writing should start with questions, right? It should Mm -hmm. always start with a question, not an answer you find the answer when you're writing, you figure it out. (laughs) At least that's how I write. I don't know about anyone else. Um, But yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, and again, yet another perfect segue. So what are the questions that you ask when you write? Who are you as a teacher writer? I've been really curious to learn more from my colleagues about how they perceive themselves as teacher writers and the kinds of curiosities that are driving you. So what role does writing play in your life, both personally and professionally? And how would you describe yourself as a teacher writer?
0: Um, <laughs> um, I have always been a writer um, in some form or fashion, even when I was, um, you know, I used to keep journals and notebooks and all those kinds of things. Um, I have Composition books filled with just conversations of dialogue that I remembered from like my friends, you know, just like, just tons of things like that. So I've always considered myself a writer. And I think some of that is from being an introvert growing up. Um, I'm doing a lot of observation of the world. Um, I think as a teacher writer, um, I think the first part of my teacher writer identity was really about writing honestly, directions, (laughs) writing Mm -hmm. samples Mm -hmm. for kids. Like that's really, um, I think, writing, composing handouts. Like those are the kinds of things that I wrote early in my career. I still write those things. Um, But after I had um, done the summer institutes at my writing project, I mean, that really opened the door and got me back in touch with the power of especially narrative writing and personal writing. For me as a teacher writer, um, I am always, I always try to ground myself in story. So whether if it's a blog post or, um, whatever it might be, I, I, start with story and I start with myself and, um, then I try to always connect to something larger, some bigger issue that I'm seeing in my classroom or seeing with kids or just seeing in the world. Um, I think of writing as a way to think, just think. Um, And I really did actually mean that when I said that sometimes I don't know what I'm saying until I've written. I'm an overwriter. So Mm -hmm. I need to write maybe 5,000 words before I find the um, 2,000 that seem to fit with what I am trying to say, Mm -hmm. which I didn't know when I started it, um, which can be very frustrating. Um, I'm (laughs) also, my style of writing is also somewhat binge writing. So I can write a whole lot in, you know, I can bang something out in, you know, um, a day or two or a weekend. And, um, but a little bit at a time, that idea of like, Oh, just write this many words every day. I'm like, that's I don't don't know. (laughs) Like, I can't, (laughs) I need to get into a flow and then once I'm in that flow, then it's good. Otherwise I come back and like, I don't know what I was talking about. Um, So I've, and I've done as a teacher writer, um, I used to just show a lot of finished products to kids too. Um, And I think that I also show them now. I'm much better at showing them my writing in progress. So I try to do a lot of the assignments that I have kids do. I think that's only fair. And um, even if I don't finish the assignment that I assign them to do, um, I at least show them like this is how I would do it or this is my first paragraph or here's something that I'm struggling with. Um, so that they can sort of, they can see that it really is a messy process. And then I asked for feedback too, which they're happy to give. <laughs> um, but really in the spirit of like, look at the process of writing and look how messy it is and look how it can always be better. Um, and I think that I would hope that, um, having that kind of model, um, helps them better understand who they are as writers as well. And that it, you know, it doesn't always have to be perfect. It just has to say what I think you, you want it to say. Right. So, and that's going to be different than what I want it to say. Like, does it express who you are and what your point is? So even in conferring with kids, I just ask a lot of questions and then I just tell them things that I'm thinking as I'm reading. Um, And I think in that question and answer and thinking and all the messiness of that, um, the piece becomes the best that it can be for that kid at that moment.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and again, going back to what you just said, that idea, does this express who you are, bringing out that I, giving them that opportunity, permission, whatever the right word is there yeah. to say, it's okay for you to yourself into this piece of writing and in fact i want you to put yourself into this piece of writing and then showing them that too
0: yeah i think that that's they sometimes they really just need a little bit of permission you know and because they didn't they they have so many things to say um and again like once we start reading lots of mentor texts of what writing actually looks like in the real world it's very clear that so much of what's out there is personal Right, the personal is deeply connected to everything that you know. Most great writing, um, and you can tell even if it's a piece about you know an issue, the writer is there. The writer is present, um, and we can feel the writer, and we can sense their lack, their sense of compassion, and we can sense their curiosity, and we can sense their confusion. Like they might say, like I'm confused, or you know, the questioning through rhetorical questions. Um, And that those are all wonderful things that they have the ability to do as well.
1: Right. And again, like you said, just this idea that we give them permission. I think schools are designed to do exactly what they're designed to do. And one of the things that they're designed to do is compliance. And so helping kids understand that, hey, you can insert your own autonomy into this piece of writing that That's a big deal for some some students and for some teachers too
0: well, it's hard because I think kids um they, especially where I teach i think I don't want to say especially where I teach I take that back. I think most kids they want to, they want to do well right um you know they sure. they want to um do their best and whatever their best happens to mean in that moment um and I think. I know I said sometimes they just need permission, but even that is like the sort of like crazy thing when you think about it, like who am I to give them permission to be themselves, right? Like the power of that. Uh, really what I'm doing is trying to make space for their voice and holding the space for that. Um, and in order to have space for kids to have their voices, you sort of have to back away as a teacher and um, think about the ways in which, and you know, I talked earlier about Um, the canon, right, in terms of reading, but there's sort of like these canonical rules when it comes to writing, and Mm -hmm. we have to think about the ways in which we can disrupt those rules. Um, My dear friend, um, Dr. Kim Parker, does a great thing with her summer school students where um, she teaches for this program at Harvard in the summer, and she has kids um, just toss out like myths, or not even myths, but rules that they've, well, they they turn out to be myths but they don't know that when they start, which is, you know, what are the rules of writing that you have learned? And they have the rule, like, don't use I, no pronouns, like just create no contractions, must be five paragraphs, thesis comes. So they know all of those rules. And the more rules we put into place, the more we squeeze out who the kids are. Um, and so it's no wonder that kids don't find writing, um, valuable or satisfying right because we've basically turned mm-hmm. it into this um clinical sterile exercise i think it's um john warner um his book uh, why they can't write amazing yeah, book right up
1: here on my yep. bookshelf amazing. yeah as a matter of fact i absolutely. love that book so
0: much um
1: there it is yeah,
0: yeah. i think it, it, that should be required reading for every writing teacher just across yep. the board and I just yep. love how he says that our, we, what we were doing, and, I, and it's been a while since I read it, but I think he says something to the effect of schools are really good at having kids do, um, they're doing like uh, imitations of writing, but not writing. Mm. They're really mm. good at imitating writing. Yep. And when I, when I was reading that book last year, the year, last year, and I told kids I was reading it and I said that quote to them, they were like, that's right. <laughs> they, they totally yep. recognized it. They recognized yep. that they were doing imitations of writing.
1: Oh, absolutely. Well, Trisha, thank you so much for the conversation, for the work that you do with and for your students, with and for other educators. I really appreciate having had the time to speak with you today.
0: Well, oh, thanks, Troy. Thanks so much for um, asking me to be on. I appreciate the opportunity.